Welcome to Twill, the week in health law, the ERISA preempted podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. We're recording this episode on March 17th, 2016. I'm Nicholas Terry, a law professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis, and my co-host is... Frank Pasquale, a law professor at the University of Maryland School of Law in Baltimore, Maryland. This week on Twill, we're pleased to welcome Christopher Robertson, Professor of Law and Associate Dean for Research and Innovation at the James E. Rogers College of Law at the University of Arizona. He's a prolific health law and policy scholar working across healthcare financing and insurance, economics, and bioethics. Welcome, Chris. Hi, it's really my pleasure to be here. So with friend of the show, Aaron Kesselheim, you have a new book called Blinding as a Solution to Bias. I didn't use the word editor here because although there are many contributions from an incredible group of of scholars across multiple disciplines, you're also the author or co-author of several chapters. Uh, There's lots of good work here. Well, thanks, Nick. This really grew out of a a collaboration with dozens of people in lots of different fields that I noticed were all starting to think about the same core method. Uh, And so we brought them together at first in a conference and then, then in this book to really try to move the debate forward on how blinding can be useful. So it's a not only a fascinating book, but it's quite broad in its reach. Uh, it includes topics as diverse as uh, voting, campaign finance, lobbying, adjudicatory bias, identification evidence, and so on. But uh, if we can, I thought we'd concentrate on some of uh, the health law, health policy implications. And I wondered if you could really help us out by starting with some of the basics. Um, After all, most of the book is about managing cognitive bias. Indeed, deep in the book, you even say, quote, blinding is not ideal. It's a second best solution, unquote. Um, So I wondered if you could explain bias and blinding and what randomized control trials are and so on to help us uh, have a background as we go further into the topics. Sure. And let me really maybe set it up with uh, what is one of my favorite stories of uh, historically, one of the first recorded uses of blinding in biomedical research. And it actually happened in Ben Franklin's own living room. He was um, commissioned by uh, King Louis of France to lead a royal commission to study mesmerism. This was a a technique for medical healing uh, promoted by um, a physician at the time named Franz Mesmer, who was going around Paris and became sort of this celebrity for doing these healing rituals that could, uh, they purported to be able to heal people of a wide range of, 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 of ailments by evoking this natural fluid force through various uh, tools and, and, and mechanisms. And so Franklin put him to the test for the first time in a blindfolded experiment where he literally put blindfolds on human subjects who were complaining of medical ailments and then uh, had uh, Franz Mesmer do his various rituals. And he found that it the blindfold completely broke the connection between the ritual and their reported healing. Sometimes when the Franz Mesmer was not doing the ritual, the human subject blindfolded would leap up saying, oh, I feel better now. Other times when Franz Mesmer was doing the ritual, there'd be no response at all. And so the blindfold for the first time allowed Franklin to, to remove the confound of, of the visual sensation of being subject to this ritual to instead get a clean test of whether there was any, you know, biological healing going on. And so since this experiment in Ben Franklin's living room, you've seen in the history every couple 
decades. It was used for homeopathic remedies and, and others. But finally, around the 1950s, we saw much more substantial and sort of rigorous and systematic use of blinding, first um, to test, um, uh, you know, drugs, uh, and then more recently to test devices. And then in a wide range of other fields, we see blinding in biomedical journals uh, to prevent their editors from knowing, say, the, the gender of the author. Uh, and then we also see it now used in the forensic sciences and lots of other areas. So that's this initial concept of blinding, which allows you to really disaggregate two different mechanisms. One is the, in, in the Franklin example, the, the experience of seeing the ritual from the biological actual changes that did or did not occur. And that, so that's really the beauty of blind, blinding. Well, that is a terrific introduction to the concept, Christopher. And I just wanted to say that I thought that the uh, book was a real tour de force in terms of bringing us through so many areas where blinding was relevant. Um, it reminded me a little bit of uh, Al Franken's proposal back during the financial crisis that uh, credit rating agencies, when uh, bonds or other things were submitted to them, it should be blinded as to say where it's coming from or which credit rating agency it's going to. So I have been following you know, the, this um, idea and just to see this magisterial survey of all these applications of blinding, especially in law and medicine, was incredibly helpful. The first question I wanted to ask you with respect to the book was, um, one chapter was on blind reviews to address biases in medical malpractice, and they mentioned the possibility uh, called a sub-ROSA method of giving data to different experts and sort of blinding the experts from knowing exactly what the implications of their uh, analysis would be. I was wondering if you could comment uh, either in particular on that issue or in general on the role that blinding might play in terms of improving the litigation process. Great. So, you know, one thing that we really wrestle with throughout the chap, throughout the book is that blinding will be more feasible in some situations than others. And so we don't want to suggest it's a panacea that you could just use whenever because, you know, blinding actually removes certain information from a decision maker. But it strikes me, and this is a, a project that I've been working on for, for about a decade now with, with several others, that litigation is precisely an area where we have actually a track record of blinding. For example, you can think of the federal rules of evidence as an effort to blind the jury uh, to not be exposed to extraneous or prejudicial facts. So we, we really create a decision space for the jury, or at least we try to, that's in that sense clean, that we don't let them uh, know, for example, about the collateral source of uh, insurance coverage for a, a defendant would be one example, how we already do this in litigation. So then the question is whether uh, in other areas of litigation, for example, the expert witness that is really essential to litigation outcomes in medical malpractice cases or in products cases for, a, say, a defective drug or a defective device, almost every one of those cases depends on expert testimony. Now, the problem with expert testimony is the way it's now practiced is that the expert is handpicked by one litigant, uh, either the plaintiff or the defendant, each picks their own expert. 
And then the expert is sort of coached um, to give an opinion about the case that reflects their sponsor's preferences. And so ultimately, by the end of the, you know, when this whole process pans out, what the jury ends up seeing is two hired gun experts, one on each side, saying predictably what their side would prefer to them to say. And my concern from sort of a scholarly policy perspective is that gives really poor guidance to a, a layperson fact finder who's trying to decide, well, well, was it medical malpractice or not? Or is there a reasonable alternative design for the device or not? The two hired guns just doesn't provide a clear signal. So we've been working on several level layers of blinding that could be applied. And so the subrosa method you mentioned is really the third layer. Let me get to that in just a second. The first would be to 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 see if we could select expert witnesses. So the selection is blinded. Rather than being handpicked by the attorney, could you have an expert, say, randomly selected or selected by an independent neutral um, from a pool of qualified experts? So that would eliminate at least the selection bias. At a second level, you could ask whether you might be able to blind the expert himself or herself so she doesn't know which side was was asking for her opinion and thus could review the case on its merits. Then we've been thinking about a third level of blinding where you could actually have some litigation opinions rendered by an expert that doesn't even know it's a litigation case. And the reason that's important is, for example, in a radiology med mal case, the key, most common uh, negligent claim is there was a, when a radiologist looked at the scan, there was a, a tumor or a fracture that the radiologist failed to see. Uh, but of course, there are non-negligent misses. It quite often happens that the fracture was just too subtle that even a reasonable radiologist wouldn't have seen it. So the question in that sort of case is whether uh, a reasonable radiologist would have seen it. But the problem with expert witnesses is they see it after the fact, after they know that it's materialized into cancer or into a backbreak. And the prior research with radiologists, and the same goes for pathologists, is that knowledge, that mere knowledge of the outcome, that mere to focus on this particular case makes the abnormality just pop out. It makes it all the more obvious when you know this is a bad case. So you really can't even get a good litigation opinion unless you were to do it in, an, in a much more robustly blinded way. And so we've been working on this with real radiologists in the field to see if we can slip litigation cases back into their clinical workflow. And rather than asking them, is this negligent or not, you just ask them to read the case again. And I'll just mention one more advantage of doing this is these clinical reads are actually relatively inexpensive. You can pay a radiologist in the normal course of work $50 to read an actual scan uh, in the clinical setting. So the neat thing about that then is it allows us to buy multiple scans for the same case. We can actually start to develop a standard of care statistically by having, say, 20 radiologists in their regular practice read the slide again in completely blinded fashion. If most of them catch the tumor, then it was probably negligent for the defendant to miss the tumor. And so that's that most robust level of blind that we're now working on developing. So what are the implications for those kinds of approaches to uh, our existing sort of rules that attempt to improve the, the quality of um, expert testimony? Um, so I'm thinking of provisions such as court-appointed experts or maybe uh, Daubert scrutiny. 
um, through peer review and 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 the other uh, sub rules. Um, are those going to be less necessary if we were able to to blind the experts like this? So the Daubert screening, you know, this is the the, the doctrine that puts the judge in the role of the gatekeeper who decides which sciences or which scientific testimony is too unreliable for it to even be heard in the presence of the jury. And in my view, that sets actually, when it's applied appropriately, it sets a very low floor. Uh, it's quite common, again, in a MedMal case for two experts, one on each side. Uh, they both survived the Daubert challenge, but one of their testimonies is really infected by bias. Part of the problem here is that the judge is himself a layperson, you know, himself or herself. You know, he's really not able to resolve the dispute between two um, experts in the given field uh, any much better than the jury itself. So that Daubert screening really is and should be a low floor, and it really doesn't solve the problems of bias that could be gotten to with either court-appointed or um, uh, or through uh, blinding. So let me mention court appointment then, which you also raised. Um, court appointment has actually been a power that the courts have had now for over a hundred years, uh, but the re- re- the research suggests they almost never actually use that power. Judges in the American system have this professional norm of being passive. You know, they decide motions when they come, and for a judge to instead get in the business of of selecting an expert, training an expert on the facts of the case, preparing the expert to testify, it just hardly ever actually happens in in routine med mal cases or products liability cases. We see some more in, in specialized courts like family courts where judges have a little bit of a different role, but it's it's turned out to not really be a solution uh, in, in the medical domain. So talking a little bit more about uh, alternatives to blinding, in your discussion uh, in the text of uh, the Franklin uh, experiment, uh, you kind of updated, if you like, the, uh, the choice architecture we have have, in addition to blinding, you talk about proscription, professionalism, and the provision of disclosures. So I I guess I'm looking at a sort of a a four-piece choice architecture here. Could you maybe flesh that out a little bit, um, say, in the context of uh, funding of medical research? Sure. The funding of medical research is another area we've we've begun looking at, uh, at, at blinding as a solution. Uh, uh, in the chat, in the book, I have a, a, a chapter with my friend Mark Rodwin, who I, th- I think it may have been on your show before, and. Um, and we look at blinding as a solution in that domain. The problem is, of course, that when industry funds their own biomedical science, they can make innumerable uh, discretionary decisions about how to design the study, how to analyze the data that have been shown to, to really bias the scientific results. So one solution that has been tried uh, is to simply disclose uh, to the consumers of that science that it is industry-funded. And so Aaron Kesselheim and I did a, uh, a with Susanna Rose, did a major randomized study of physicians to look at how they, as consumers of biomedical science, respond to disclosures that it's been funded by industry. And we found that those disclosures caused physicians to dramatically reduce the amount that they rely on the biomedical science that they're reading when it's funded by industry. Now, the problem is that telling us a doctor don't rely too heavily on this study doesn't really tell them what they can rely on. It doesn't provide 
provide uh, a lodestar uh, for what's good science. It just says, here's a study published in the New England Journal of Medicine, you know, caveat emptor. So that's really a problem with disclosure as a remedy for funding, is that it, it, it tells you what not to trust, and it doesn't necessarily create trustworthy science itself. Um, another solution is prescription, uh, another P, a fancy word for, for prohibiting or banning a financial relationship. So in this domain, we could prohibit uh, companies from funding science about their own products. You know, on the one hand, there's dangerous uh, First Amendment doctrine that, that, that would make such a proposal pretty hairy uh, because there's thought to be a right to free speech to promote your own products or to do scientific testing. But even aside from that, again, that would squelch science. It wouldn't necessarily produce the good science that doctors need to rely on. So you would need to uh, accompany uh, such a, a proposal with, say, a dramatic increase in funding for the National Institutes of Health. Increase their budget from the $40 billion ballpark to the uh, $400 billion ballpark, if not more, if we really want them to displace the industry funding of their own science. So the alternative that Mark and I have been developing in the chapter in the book is you could continue having industry funding of science, but it needs to pass through an intermediary so that the industry isn't also uh, shaping the science with their money. They're not specifying who the investigator can be to make sure it's one that's that's friendly to them. They're not specifying exactly how to measure the endpoints so they can get one that happens to be favorable to the particular mechanism that their drug works on, even if it doesn't promote health. So what we're exploring is whether there could be an intermediary. Maybe it's actually the NIH or the FDA that could take industry money and nonetheless produce trustworthy and trustable science. That makes a lot of sense. And the next question I wanted to ask, uh, Chris, was there was a bit in the book that talked about blinding being essential to the rigorous conduct of clinical trials, particularly the idea of the need for sham controls, because the application of device itself could be associated with placebo effects. Could you talk about whether sham controls are taking off and to what extent they are becoming standard, or are there just too many concerns about, say, the inconvenience or pain that they may cause to patients and to, I mean, to our research subjects? This is a really important and interesting topic. It's, you know, one way to think about it is, is it's the transition of taking the double-blind randomized controlled trial from the d- drug domain, where the placebo can simply be a green-colored, you know, fiber pill, and taking it to the, the medical device domain. Let me just give you two examples of where we know this is really important. One is the use of bone cement, which is used uh, quite commonly for osteoporotic uh, fractures of the vertebra. Um, here, you can actually glue, essentially, the, the two vertebrae together to stabilize the spine and, in theory, re- reduce pain. And this was shown in uh, randomized uh, trials uh, where patients either got the treatment or they didn't. It seemed to be quite effective. And on this basis, it received FDA approval, was marketed extremely broadly and got broad uptake in the market. Only later were actual sham controls done where they again did a randomized study, but the people in the control condition received very small incisions in their back and told that, you know, you may or may not have gotten the procedure, um, which is the same thing the people that really did get the procedure were told. And in those sham controlled trials, it turned out that the bone uh, cement was totally ineffective. 
Another example uh, was uh, the use of uh, radio frequency renal denervation devices. And I won't go into the science of how that works, but basically you make a small incision, you put a device in, you run electrical current, and that can again help uh, relieve pain. Again, in, in trials without sham controls, where it's just some receive the device, some receive nothing, it appeared to be wonderfully effective. But when they later uh, did the sham controlled trials, the f- efficacy disappeared. And so it suggests that in both of those examples, the phenomenon was a placebo effect. People thought that, gosh, I'm going under the knife, I must be getting better. Um, and it turned out that uh, the highly promoted, very expensive devices seem to have no effect. And, and when you stop and think about it, that's not unlike the finding of Ben Franklin with, with mesmerism centuries ago. So the ethical questions are then, and we have a chapter by Franklin Miller on this, is whether is it ethical to, to cut into someone, even if it's just a small cut, uh, in order to uh, produce this gold standard biomedical knowledge. And here I think it's a classic sort of uh, bioethics question. Uh, you know, in all placebo controls, you're not giving a person a placebo for their own benefit. You're giving it to them. It's not for clinical ethics. You're giving it to them for research ethics because there's a larger unitarian societal benefit. But at the same time, that this is just, you know, first-year bioethics, at the same time, you do it with the informed consent of the subject. They need to be, have the chance to make a decision for themselves so they're not being used as mere means. And I think all of that analysis really goes straight through to these sorts of very minor surgeries that are nonetheless sufficient to serve as a sham control. We could talk about much more extreme versions, you know, a complete open-heart surgery or something, where we might think the risks of that sham are outweighed, uh, you know, the shift, the risks outweigh whatever social benefit we get in that biomedical knowledge. There's a chapter by Paul Wicks, uh, gets researched in an area of social media in which he says, quote, with the growing availability of wearable consumer technologies, such as fitness trackers, smartphone apps, and sophisticated consumer medical devices, the gap between what patients know and what researchers know seems destined to close even further. There's been a classic problem throughout the history of randomized controlled experimentation that many human subjects feel desperately interested in getting the unproven treatment. You know, when you're doing a cancer trial, for example, many of those cancer patients desperately feel a desire to have the treatment rather than the control. And, you know, in our current... uh, system in the United States, trials are really the primary, almost the only way to get access to some of these investigational drugs. But um, but the but but the 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 risk of being ending up in a control condition and not getting that treatment that you have such high hopes for is, is really difficult for patients. And so what you see in these um, patient communities online is a lot of communication, a lot of attempts to guess which condition they're in. So patients will say, gosh, I'm getting this great uptake. And by the way, you know, my pill is blue and has a 34 on it. And I'm getting dry mouth and, you know, um, uh, some slight tremors in my hands. So therefore, I think I'm on the the investigational uh, uh, treatment. 
Whereas other patients in the trial are going to the website and, and they're not getting the dry mouth and their pill might have a 37 on it. Uh, and they think, oh, darn, I'm in the control condition. Uh, I'm going to just drop out of this study uh, and, uh, and and go try something else. Um, and so that creates a real problem of attrition uh, when people are dropping out because they think they're in the control condition and really starts to replicate some of these placebo effects that we were trying to avoid in the first place. And so... Uh, the author, Paul Wicks, is, is, is real, uh, an advocate for these patient communities, and we're really just starting to grapple with what this means. I mean, he suggests a deeper social contract with patients to uh, almost taking the idea of informed consent to a deeper le- level so they can actually participate in designing the studies and recruiting for them. I don't know what the answer is, uh, but, but I, we included this chapter because the, the, the gold standard of the blinded, randomized control trial really is at risk. That's great, Chris. And I now want to move on to some of your articles. Um, I'm particularly interested in an article which you did, which we'll put on the show notes, which essentially advocates for keying cost-sharing obligations to employees' wages. Could you describe that idea and give our listeners a sense of exactly how that could make skin in the game both more equitable and more effective? Sure. And here we're talking about the full range of cost sharing that, that patients are exposed to, co-pays, deductibles, co-insurance. Um, and so the concern is that for some patients, uh, uh, we know that those uh, uh, burdens are so heavy that they're forgoing health care, that it's causing stress uh, and reducing adherence to health care. And so these patients, uh, the research has shown, are actually underinsured. They have insurance, but it's really not enough to serve its purposes because this cost-sharing exposure is so high in a bad year when they're really sick and needing to draw on their insurance the most. On the other hand, what, what I've contributed in this work is a concept of overinsurance. There are some patients that uh, are doing well enough financially due to their, their salaries and other income that the cost-sharing exposures have a cap so that in any given year that they're only going to save face three or four or five thousand dollars of cost sharing worst case scenario where the patient in fact you know might earn uh, 30 or 40 times that much if they're earning say 175 or two hundred thousand dollars and so for them they become overinsured meaning they no longer have any skin in the game when they make their biggest co- uh, consumption decisions and thus arguably and, and the evidence suggests that they're over consuming health care. And so by marrying these two conceptual problems together, underinsurance and overinsurance, we can start to think of a solution, which is, uh, when you put it that way, almost obvious, the scaling of cost-sharing burdens to the ability to pay. Now, one great thing, it's, it's rare to start a sentence about the American healthcare system by saying a great thing about it for this purpose, is that we actually deliver a huge portion of health insurance through employers. It's a fairly unique feature of the United States health insurance system. For other purposes, this particular way of designing a health insurance system has been disastrous because people move around employers and there can be gaps in coverage, etc. But for this purpose, thinking about how to scale cost sharing to income, it really is a beautiful thing because the same employer who provides your wages also provides your health insurance. And so those two can simply be linked together. And so one way to do that I would I develop in this paper is to say, well, let's figure out what, what is currently the worst case scenario for the median 
American, uh, and and it turns out it's about six percent of their annual income uh, tends to be the cap that they now face in cost sharing. And so, if we were to take that same six percent uh, and apply it to people making five times as much, uh, or to people making it one fifth as much, you could have a decent level of exposure up and down the income continuum, and uh, and thus both provide better insurance coverage to people that need it, but also lower the costs of insurance by stopping uh, the overconsumption problem. And then in the back of the paper, I can uh, I talk about some of the legal aspects of this uh, that, that are also interesting. Well, thanks so much, Chris. And my last question is going to be around another article, which was published, I believe, in Innovation and Entrepreneurship and Health. How could split benefit health insurance reform reduce high cost and low value healthcare consumption? So this is a uh, really a bookend on the paper we just talked about, scaling cost sharing, uh, and it really applies uh, to a wide range of healthcare that we know uh, from the evidence uh, really doesn't promote health. Uh, it's costly, um, but the evidence does not suggest it's very helpful. Uh, and in our American healthcare system, we've decided to nonetheless tolerate a certain degree of that because we want to promote patient autonomy and physician discretion. So we really need a solution that's consistent with that healthcare system. It doesn't seem to be feasible to, to just uh, start uh, prescribing entire categories of healthcare. So the solution I've developed is consistent with this idea of consumer-directed healthcare, where we give patients skin in the game. We ask them to pay a portion of the cost so that then they can evaluate the costs and benefits of a given healthcare intervention. The problem is the same one I mentioned before: is is that some individuals really can't afford to cover a substantial portion of their own healthcare. When you look at cancer drugs, for example, uh, of the last uh, twelve or so that were approved, they tended to have uh, price tags of over $100,000 for a course of treatment. So you really can't expect a median patient in the United States to pay a substantial portion thereof. So one model I've been developing is this idea of a split benefit, where you could think again about the insurance benefit we currently provide to patients. When you stop and think about it, it's actually an in-kind benefit. By that, I mean the insurer says, we will pay your provider if you decide to consume a given covered health care. So why don't we instead reroute some of that money and actually put it in the hands of the patient and say, you know, here's one-tenth or, or one-seventh uh, of your health insurance benefit for this, say, uh, cancer therapy that's not proven to have great benefits, but it's nonetheless expensive. If you want to consume that cancer uh, treatment, you take the money to your provider, we'll pay the rest as a match, and you'll get full cover just as your insurance contract provides. But on the other hand, perhaps now that you have this cash in your hand, several thousand dollars, you might want to think twice about whether to consume the health care. Perhaps there's other things that would be more valuable for you and that would thus save money for the health care insurer and the health system more generally. So that's why I call it a split benefit because it puts part of the insurance benefits in the hands of the consumer. Once it's in the hands of the consumer, it really functions just like a copay or a deductible that you're familiar with. They have to take it to the doctor or the uh, or the pharmacy if they want to consume the health care. So then it has all the benefits and disadvantages of cost sharing, except for the worst one, which is it doesn't have this wealth effect. We're not asking people to dig into their own wallets, which may well be empty. Rather, we're putting the money in their hands and letting them make a choice. So the particular study you asked about was where we, we actually tested this in a randomized vignette-based experiment with almost 2,000 people 
we, we recruited to ask them how they would behave if given this sort of payment and, and whether they would view it as offensive for an insurer to, to give them this sort of money and the choice of whether to consume health care. And in that study, we found that it would actually be highly effective. It works even if you pay very small splits. Uh, and people don't see it as offensive at all. They tended to support it uh, as a mechanism of their own private health insurance or as a reform to Medicare. Um, so it looks like a promising uh, healthcare reform that's admittedly sort of uh, out of the, the the current playbook. And it's, it's one of the themes I'll be developing in my next book uh, that I'll be working on next year and that'll be coming out with Harvard University Press. And that was this week's The Week in Health Law. A special thank you to Professor Robinson for joining us. Uh, Chris, that's an awful lot of territory we covered today. Uh, thank you so much for being with us. It's really been my pleasure. Thanks for having me. We post our show notes at twill.com. If you have a moment, please go to iTunes and rate the show. You can contact me at Nicholas Terry on Twitter. And Frank, where will you be this week? I am at Frank Pasquale on Twitter. Thank you for joining us and have a legally interesting but healthy week. <laughs> <laughs>